in the beginning, there was chaos. And from that chaos was born the first rule, and thus came law. But it was not until the thinking mind, the first anguished moment of conscious existence, that these states were given context. In the agony of awareness, the first question was born. Where? The need to explore, the need to find. Food, safety, a mate. Inquiry and intention in our infancy. Who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested, and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android, or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. inquiry. You are not here to answer or be answered. You are here to become an answer. In the wake of the obliteration of a mortal soul, you can only gaze in awe upon the power of the first true god you've ever seen. That is my sister, says a voice behind you. You turn to see Doug. He was not present on your journey, Yet here he is, perhaps always was. As he says this, his skull splits with a loud, thunderous crack. His arms seize in a fencing pose, as though he has suffered brain trauma. And then he apologizes for the confusion. (sighs) Sorry about that. The dug of me is dying. But don't grieve. He exists in every moment of my perpetuity. From Doug's skull, skin begins to bulge, forcing greater the divide until it sunders him. The flesh of the man piles on the floor, and where he stood, a body whose directions and contours are an amalgamation of all possible positions and gestures hangs in the air. As his feet touch the ground, dozens of impressions of humanoid action extrude from the source, each one a novel body enacting some will. One extrusion, its penile flesh erect and throbbing, crawls tenderly across the ground to penetrate an unseen body, writhing in ecstasy. 
Another, poor sign in sweating, pantomimes the driving of a blade into its own chest, which splits, spilling forth multitudes of translucent viscera, which evaporate on contact with solid matter. Another squats to relieve itself only to birth a child, which before your eyes grows into a woman and repeats the process. Dozens more play out the flesh and action of mortality, in pulsing moments, only to retract into their source and repeat again. An unseen rhythm drives and redacts these iterations with such speed and fluidity, calling to mind a balloon inflating and deflating in time to a slow beat. It joins its sister. We are your tribunal, intention and inquiry. Grimmick Cragback, to stand as voice of mortality and reason. Tell us your story. Well, I have done this before. Don't want to do it again, but it is my responsibility. I, Gaspar Alefnad, was born into a well-tuned system of control. The function of my caste was to solve and process mathematical equations of magic. These spells were compartmentalized and processed by random individuals so we could never replicate them ourselves. The majority of our physiological needs were met through magical conjuration. I only came to hate that way of life after Locke and I witnessed the extent of decadence and power the plurals possessed. At first, we used what we stole to bring comfort to our family and friends, just more of our basic needs. Our handlers had so much, they would never even notice what went missing. Our arrogance eventually led to escalating miracles that finally triggered contingencies. My mistake was trusting that Locke would not have sold me out so quickly. I was sent to a prison for rehabilitation, but that program was designed for those who had not seen what I had. My time there was not pleasant, but educational. I learned that Locke had been rewarded for betraying me so efficiently. They turned that reward into an opportunity to remain in the good graces of our handlers. That is the moment that revenge became my sole intent. I did everything I could think of to ensure an early release. When the news of Locke's upcoming ascension into plurality reached me, I was barely a few hours into my reclaimed freedom. My arrow found its way into Locke's skull midway through the ascension. The moment they were neither singular nor plural, and so they became nothing. My punishment was to labor in service to the problematic but necessary beings that were kept in demi-planes of separate times. When my mind and body and soul were on the verge of the intended collapse of my punishment, an offer was whispered into me from the shadows. A being introducing itself as Krom promised me freedom, and I was too broken to understand what it was taking from me in return. A fraction of my soul was taken as collateral while I worked to repay this debt. I would steal souls away from gods midway through petition and smuggle them to Krom. Working at that pace, though, it would be nearly an eternity before I could ever settle what I owed. When I stumbled upon an LUQ feed during one of my hunts, I was inspired. I made the necessary deals to get an invitation, 
I passed the entrance tests and joined the team. The first quest came with such a bountiful reward. Sure, the contestants was nice. I could collect as much souls with impunity thanks to the unique nature of the Axis and how it interacted with the souls of the departed. But the real blessing was taking Nepet and what he had learned from his uncle and binding it to me. The knowledge of necromancy I wrung out of him gave me the means to work behind Crom's back. At least that's what I thought. As we climbed the League's ranks, making my payments became easier. I was ambitious at times, though. I made plans to harvest the uniquely powerful souls of my teammates, just in case the opportunity arose. The skeptic's dagger gave me options. When the chance to take Penelope's soul was given to me, I was forced to look back at everything I had done for the sake of my own selfishness. My realization? Why couldn't I be selfish one more time and take the risk of using the dagger on myself to sever the leash on my soul? I discovered the thing I had made a deal with was not Crom, but the Darkwood, and that Crom was a manufactured paradox of myself as a result of what I had given away. I don't fully understand what it is that has happened to me, but I am ready to find out. I'm ready to face what I have become, what I will become. No, what I fear, I already am. Were you aware at the time that you were serving yourself? At no point was I ever aware. But you didn't ask. I didn't want to know. The eye begins to spin and roll at that. If it could blink, it would. Ignorance is a curse. To choose it, why? Ignorance was how I grew up. It's how I was raised. It's how they designed me. Habit, then? Nothing else? Habit. Lack of inspiration. Or fear? I have many fears. I listen to all their voices. Without your aid, Krom could never have risen to power. But, without your nascent plurality, you might never have gotten strong enough to challenge him. To you, this is a paradox. To us, it is an inevitability. If you had the choice, would you have elected to remain here in bondage? I desire my freedom. If you offered me bondage, I would say no but I am afraid of what I would do with my true freedom. But you trade one binding for another, freely, frequently. Does the touch of the cuff chafe so poorly that you would accept a worse fate to be free of the pain? I think I tell myself and others that. But I have traded one cuff for another, one leash for a collar, the other for a shackle if only to give your wrist a chance to heal. You ask me that if I was offered freedom, if I would have taken it. Even knowing the consequences, it is what I desire. But I don't truly know what it is. Where I grew up, none of us did. Our handlers made sure of that. And even now, while you inquire, I am not complete. My happiness is dull. 
my anger somewhat stifled. The only thing I feel complete is the desire to be whole once more. Rest now. As Gaspar finishes, Hal takes a step forward, and in a spray of blood and the rending of armor, Halifon Orson dies. Bleed for me, Halifon. Your life for the child's destiny. No, no! Traitor! Disloyal dog, what have you done? He is worthless now. A baby cries. No one soothes it. It didn't take Mum long to abandon me. She isn't exactly the child-rearing type, and Ethelto is no place to grow up. I'm glad she gave me to Auntie Ilfilda and Uncle Njol. It actually might be the most caring thing she ever did for me. It wasn't perfect, though. Like Dad, my aunt and uncle were humans, regular folk. Ilfilda would watch the league and take me sometimes, but they were pretty simple folk. They didn't really know what to do with the Nephilim. Things were really hard when I was little. I played too rough, and I hurt my little cousins a lot. I don't know if any of them ever fully grew out of being afraid to play with me. House voice fades and another scene begins. Four children playing at sword fighting with sticks. The oldest boy, a little younger than Hal. The oldest boy deflects the attacks of the three smaller children with a focused, far-off expression. Suddenly, he spins around a lunge from a young boy and trips him on his way past. The boy falls face first onto the hard ground, knocking the wind out of him. A girl tries to jab with a long, spear-like stick, but Halifon Jr. deflects the strike into the ground, then stomps on the haft, shattering the spear into pieces. Another cousin, a boy not quite his age, swings down in an enormous overhand chop, and Hal raises his own weapon to block. The crack of the sticks meeting is audible from the farmhouse, and a small girl pulls at her mother's skirt. Mama, they're fighting again. Hal stands over his oldest cousin, the boy's stick knocked from his hands, and a red welt burning across his arms. I'm sorry, 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 he says as his cousin finishes a long, shocked inhale and begins to release it as a wailing cry. Tears well in Hal's eyes as he reaches for the welt, a glow sputtering across his fingertips. His cousin shoves his hands away and runs past him towards the house. That wasn't nice, Halifon, the girl pouts, brushing off two scraped knees and helping her little brother to his feet. As his aunt's shadow looms over him, he looks at her. I'm sorry, I forgot again. Terror, panic, and desperation fill the cerulean eyes of a small boy. Dressed in a purple and gold paper jersey, he tries to use a real sword, which is much too heavy for him, to block the equally real sword of an orc who tries to kill him. It is clear he is overmatched, and his frantic defense is falling apart as his mother's eyes narrow and mouth tightens in a grimace. The orc is gone. The boy's paper jerseys in tatters, tinted with blood, from wounds he no longer bears, thanks to his mother's healing. Disgraceful. A son of mine, overmatched at one-eighth. Is there a floor too low for your incompetence? Or are you no angel, but a demon with a direct link to the abyss? Again, boy, 
Let us see if zero is an overestimation of your talents. I barely even heard what mum said. She'd already summoned him. White gold fur so thick it looked like I could climb inside of it. His eyes were milky, but he didn't seem to mind. He was just happy to be there, to exist. I told her I wouldn't. It is sick, Halifon. It is worthless, and I expect you to put it down like it deserves. I refused again. That made her angry. I usually liked to make her angry. I liked it better than indifference. It made her feel more human to me. But I underestimated her. She wasn't angry. She was furious. Blood drips from the tip of an eight-foot-long greatsword driven through the chest of a seven-year-old boy. Mommy, did I protect him? He collapses in a heap, the sword clanging as the weight of his impaled body drives it to the ground. No, Halifon, she whispers. Death would have been a blessing. Things were never quite the same after that. Dying's a trip, and if I was a weird kid before, getting dumped half-conscious and covered in blood in the middle of my birthday cake mere seconds after disappearing, whole and healthy, doesn't exactly make you many friends either. I think Njol and Ulfilda comped quite a bit of product to my friends' families that night. I'd never thought of myself as a hero before that. I knew I was different than my cousins. I knew Dad was a hero. But it had never occurred to me that that meant that I should be too. But, at least at the time, I didn't think Mum would have given me that trial if she didn't believe in me. I wanted to make her proud, live up to my name, and to Dad's legacy. So I studied. I got some help, and I built an LUQ audio receiver. I couldn't watch the scries, but I could listen. I kind of preferred it that way anyway. I'd lay out my trading cards and the stats for the monsters, and I'd take little figurines and I'd move them around the table to simulate the tactics. And I would study. I wanted to be ready the next time Mum summoned me. I'd have had better luck wishing I was a dragon. The sound of explosions in the distance. Steel clashing against steel. The roar of tongues, too profane and too divine to be comprehended. The sounds of war. Hona, no. We aren't as little as we used to be, and you can't sneak in heavy armor anyway. We have a game plan. Why are you trying to change it? I'm tired of losing, Al. Constant stalemates and peric victories. Taking grain on one front just to lose it on another. I want to win. You absolute egg, Hona. We can't win. Nobody can win the infinite war. That's not how it works. You and I both know we can win a battle without winning the war. It happens all the time. Don't you want to accomplish something while you're here? Don't you want anything to change? Yeah. Yeah, I, I do. All right, Hona. Let's hear your plan. And I swear on all the saints, if it involves using your wings. <laughs> Lots of prospects come from the Little League of Ultimate Quisting. Not me. Why play at Quisting when you have a plane of limitless conflict? I spent my summers training for battle alongside some of the greatest dead warriors in all the planes. I didn't pay any attention when they started talking about a change in the air. Maybe I should have. You can pretty much watch the scry if you want to see what happened after that. 
The eye rolls back into itself, splits into multiple pupils, and from it, dozens upon dozens of scries begin to play as they watch your entire career played out ad infinitum. The eye snaps back to you. I didn't expect to be paired up with this exact team. It's not what I'd envisioned, but it was effective, and I wasn't going to argue with results. I thought everything was all right up till things went a bit sideways at the press conference. Tonga had come. He'd replaced one of my coaches. He told me something impossible. He said, Mum's army was losing the war on Ethel Toa. Nobody loses war on Ethel Toa. That's not how infinite works. But he said it was true. Told me the Exus wasn't real. There was nothing there. Told me I had to come with him. That he was doing me a courtesy of giving me a warning before they carried me off. So I went. I went because they called me. I went because there was something that needed to be protected. And somebody who needed me more than my friends did. And when I got there, it's not the same place I lived. They sent me to a place that should have been impossible. A place with no war on the plane of infinite war. And then mum was there. And then she told me that I had to join the Darkwood. And the only thing I knew about the Darkwood was that it ate Penny's dad. And then Penny was there and she said it was fine and I had to do it. And the codices told me that that was my fate. And I, Wait, what do you mean I was there? You were there. You, there was a, a realization of you, an actual, a version of Penny was there. And mom knew a name. She knew your name was Kara. And I didn't understand until we went to Evdemonia, Eudemonia, I mean, with you. And your sister called you forth and she used your name. And I went, what? I've heard that before. But she was there and she told me that it was okay. As he says it, you remember it. That dark part of you. That thing you once were and now are. You remember walking forth, speaking to him, convincing him, beckoning to him. Something you might have pushed down, avoided, stayed distant from in your own memories. And now comes crashing down on you like a wave. I didn't know that. I'm sorry. I didn't know you didn't know. I did what mom told me. I accepted it. There were terms. One of them was that the Darkwood's current champion had to be eliminated. That was Ophidian. As Hal speaks the name, there's the suggestion of movement behind him, as though a figure who's almost present steps out from behind him. But there isn't one. An extrusion of intention steps forward with a crown of flowers, kneels, stands, kneels, dies. Yeah. I never liked Ophidian. I won't hide that. He was good at what he did, and I understood his reasons, but I always thought he was a bit of an ass for doing them the way he did. I didn't really want to kill him, but I didn't think I had a choice. What mum said, that the Darkwood was the only way to stop the war from destroying everything. I believed her. I believed her because I didn't want to ask the questions. And I didn't ask the questions because I was afraid of the answers. I look at Gaspar. I know I fucked up. I don't know if I can make it right. 
but it wasn't my intention to fuck up. I thought I was doing the right thing. I told myself I was doing the heroic thing. But heroes don't often end up where I'm at. And I kind of gesture. We are not choice. We are intention. For good or ill, intentions matter. Your choices were few. Your intentions were fewer. I do not see thought. I do not see process. I do not see inquiry. I see action. Intention. Intention ignored. Automatic. Instinctual. Fear. Anxiety. Apprehension. But little intention. Hal looks down. Like a dog. Defined axis. Well, we know this word. We remember it as the corporeal being, Doug. We do not know it now. Define it. Um, you want me to define a word? Yes. I glance uneasily over at Iavos. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a thing that stuff rotates around. The X is capital A that I was talking about. That. Uh, it's where the league operates on Zenith above Era and it's where the dungeons are. You go in through the collar and there's quests inside and it changes and you get lost in there. And one time we used it to enter the Estrum, which apparently you're not supposed to do, but we did. And then people got very angry with us. It is water in the oil of our minds. I think that makes sense. Rest now. Oh boy. Wusha steps forward, reaching into his bag and pulling out his last bottle on him of chunky grog, taking a nice deep sip, crunching shells thoughtfully. Money's done. Er, uh, ain't much in the telling of it. When I were we, I was called Ra'au Ra'ua, living with my tribe and mother on Skanawi. I weren't the most productive or useful of my kin, choosing to spend most of my days dreaming and lazing about. During one of these days, something attacked the group of youngins I were meant to be picking berries with, and Plum killed the elder overseeing us. I got the blame for what happened, and I got proper banished from the tribe. Haven't seen hide nor hair of them since. Seeing as that old Skanawi's got a whole lot of sea, I found me work sailing, what whipped the layabout right out of me. I can't proper remember how many ships I crewed on, but it were a fair many. Last one afore I came Wusha was a nasty ship called the Lawyer's Whale with a bunk full of bastards. <laughs> the laugh echoes through the air. <sighs> I was trying to do a kindness for the tribe on an island called Witch Spit. But Captain Baruga set to tricking me from launch. Right afore we got struck by a hunger-mad kraken. The murk, what had been poison in the waters, set rot to our timbers. That monster squid punched holes in the liar's whale. But Baruga the jaw had what pleasure there was in sending me to the crushing waves. It were his fault I came to meet what I knew was Mother Ocean. She whispered me back what I'd come to think of as my mother. 
that voice hollowing out Ryua and remaking me with what she got to hand, renaming me after the only thing she had to say to the shore. Old Mother gave her new babe only one task. Divine each sea there were and sail atop it, letting none stop me. Thinking little of it, which is a habit I need kick soon, I sit back to crew in ships and learn of the league. Figured it'd be the easiest place to get the job Mother Ocean gave me done. League work were harder than I thought. Bounced about a few teams for a bit, doing what I could to pay my dues. I like to say poaching leviathans were something I got into by accident. The air splits with a scream of a dying creature, far larger than you can imagine. Visions swim before your eyes of leviathans trapped and slain, not found and scavenged as they were promised to be. But following Quint and making ends meet is proper tough for them what aren't famous. More visions swim before you of Abelite children going door to door, people hungry, desperate. These same visions duplicate across multiple planes. After a few years of being a ringer, I got the invite to join the crown and thought myself lucky for a chance, despite the shite I'd heard of them. Turns out, their type of fun is what I craved. We started up in the guts of some big fella, had my fill of shrimp, said all the wrong things to a dragon, licked stuff, seen prison more times than I had ever want, met some dugs, had a nice healthy cry with the crew, wrestled a piss boy, was in a book for a spell, right proper adventuring things. Old Penn and I were fast friends, which were nice because I'd never had a proper friend before. Gasper was always telling me something to do, and Yavo saw how much I'd eat and came round on me. Though it's gone a bit sour now. For damn good reasons, I were excited to meet Hal when I did. Hal were with us when we lost Penn. Went somewhere she couldn't. Didn't even know about it till it were too late. Had to find a sneaky way back to her homeland to get her back however we could. Some kind of ritual with her kin. Things like that ain't really what I'm good at. Seemed like as soon as we had her back, we found ourselves in a mess again. <sighs> Vigin Ashpool found out where we were somehow and tried to tell us what was right. I didn't listen to a damn word that eel said. Maybe if I'd had a mind to, I wouldn't end it up like I did. Soon as he fell, that witch would also called herself Penny showed up and Al turned on us. Seems he were her champion or some such. He and I got to a scuffle, and I got killed. Back to that great empty nothing what were Mother Ocean. Or so I thought. Alone I was in that darkness for near on twenty years. Left me nothing but time to stew on how much I let my crew down, my new friends. Being completely cut off from all I knew tortured me more than any blade or tooth would have ever run through me. I hated that place. I hated Hal. I hated that dread witch. I hated those black fouling gold trees. I hated me. I figured that was it for old Wusha. The lonesome end of an old sailor story like I'd heard so many so often. Something made at me down there, though. That wee nibble wouldn't let me go drift onto the nothingness I knew were eager to have me. When it were strongest, I chased it. A twisting and puzzling path of hard corners and shifting colors would give a drunk octopus a right challenge. <laughs> but at the end, I found it. I found life. I found my crew again. 
Not sure if the crown have me back after I went and failed him like I'd done, but they made it true clear that I belonged with them. Hooked by each word I was. Turns out that the crown were hooked by debt from bringing sweet little me back from the dead, too. <laughs> we hunted around for someone to shoulder that burden and help us back into the league to boot. Spoke to a few folk about that, none standing out more than a cranky eyeball who was more than a plank loose, and ended up striking a bargain with old abscissa vinculum for terms what seemed a bit more crooked than I could follow. We got new quarters, and I finally had me a boat again. So I can't be too glum about the whole thing. Now being back meant getting right to work, and work we did. In and out of tasks, we found ourselves at Ethel Toa. Ethel Toa might be the roughest, scraggliest place I've ever seen, with its smoke, muddy fields of war, and grove after grove of them damn black and gold darkwood trees. When we found Al there, it were all I could think of not to pull his head right from his shoulders and kick that fucker into the sun. I went to avenge myself, but got halted by Yavos's magic. Guess we have time for Yavos to be sad, Gasper to trick us into trouble, and Nelly to be lost, but not for Wusha to be angry. After a long while of gum flapping, Hal went with us to find his mother and put a bloody end to her. To her credit, at no time did she deny anything she did. Meeting her blade to blade in the hollow of one of them old accursed trees. Though Amaliel, the archangel of war and all that, put up one hell of a fight, the old crown is a bit harder to break than we look. At least in that way. Come to the end of the scrap, Gasper had Hal at the end of them killer knives of his. And what did he go and do? Give the backstabbing fuck a nick. Only a nick! <sighs> I needed my space then, and went off to find me a weapon. Seeing as that one of mine had gone and broke itself somehow. I found myself looking down at one of them dark trenches, and saw hands made a cold shadow reaching up to me asking for purpose. Orders. <laughs> That's when Nellie found me, and told me she'd been the one what killed me. Her but twisted by those god's awful dark woods. Them words cracked me like I were an old stone, and I'm not sure that kind of break ever really heals. We had to dock quick before coming home, but I weren't in me right head to appreciate it. When we got back, I were a right proper ball of nerves, and Doug showed up and told us he were dying, said it were the dark woods what were doing it, and showed me how I lost myself. How I'd been stolen from me. How Mother Ocean weren't ever real, and it were all that damned dark woods what cored me like a wet apple and made me its shite-head puppet. Now even what I call me is a lie. And I weren't never given some important task, just made to spread its rot wherever I should go. I'm no Wusha crashing wave turning the hardest rock to sand. A withered old taproot what the tree don't need no more. So what good were all the mad? What good were the overthinking what I were meant for? What good were my spirit when I never really had one? All good for exactly nothing. I'm letting it all go. Because I don't know what bit of me is feeding them trees. But I won't give it anything more. I hope it liked the flavor of my exuberance. Because I got none left to take. I learned what it takes to crack a crown. And you only need be exiled twice. Wusha is going to reach up into the tangle of his beard and pulls out the dark wood seed he tore from Hamaliel's chest. 
He drops it on the ground and gathers all of the rage he has left in his heart. Gripping the spear, he crushes it into countless pieces with a clap of booming thunder. From intention and inquiry, conflict, perhaps the father of good and evil. To intend and seek beyond what is, is to find competition. From competition, conflict. From conflict, adaptation. Is conflict evil? Is pain? If need and suffering are the drivers of intention, and intention creates action, can good and evil exist without desire? Good and evil cannot exist without a mind to conceive of them. They are created in the need to understand. The pursuit of meaning, purpose, justice, fairness, drives the definition of good and evil. Words without definition, desperate for a mind to give them context and value. about to witness a planar phenomenon, a keyhole between worlds that only marketing can penetrate. Join me as we glimpse into the adverse. Lucky for you, it's time for my break. All this torturing can work up quite an appetite. But with my busy schedule, I don't have time for regular shopping or meal prep. That's why I'm glad I use Factor. Fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted meals ready in two minutes and delivered straight to my door. 35 weekly options and over 60 add-ons to keep things interesting. You, you're a thin one. You'd probably like their calorie-smart options. Me, I'm building muscle. So I love their Protein Plus options. <laughs> yes, you're right. The scheduling flexibility is amazing if I want to change for as much or as little as I need week to week. It's fast, premium options with no cooking required. <laughs> of course I have a deal for you. Head to factormeals.com slash theleague50 and use code theleague50 to get 50% off. That's code the League 50 at factormeals.com slash the League 50 to get 50% off. A deal that can't be beat. And speaking of being beaten, it's time to get back to work. Hi, I'm Madigan from Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Check out new episodes Mondays and Fridays for a wide variety of topics and news episodes. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Rage on. New from the makers of Slayerobics, it's Rather Size. 
Harness your inner burning rage and watch the calories just melt away. Okay, and step, and step. We're moving, we're charging. There's no retreat. Swords up, and down, and up, and down. Okay. These easy-to-follow scrying discs come in a three-part set for just 10 easy payments of 15 drafts. Now with your bare hands, people, grip the neck and twist and twist. Feel the light slip away from your foe. Now cool down and breathe and think. Think about the wake of destruction that you've left in your path. The families of those that you've robbed of their loved ones. And breathe, and breathe. Now twist, and rend. Hold that head up high. Be washed in the blood of your enemies. Now with an extra bonus disc of advanced two-handed rather-sized techniques. Okay, people. Hand over hand, feel the swing. Pivot from your hips. Lead with your main hand, brace with your off hand, spin, and spin. And we're wading through their entrails. Keep the momentum, people. That's called a cleave. Order now for your three-disc set of Rathersize with bonus two-handed training disc. Work out your body while working out your issues with Rathersize. Hey there, LU cuties. I missed you. It's episode 112 of season two. And besides some side story stuff, that's basically how many episodes were in season one of the LUQ. Are you excited to see what happens next? I know we are. Just like last season change, this coming of season three means there will likely be some new aspects to the Patreon. All the bonus content, maps, monsters, magic items, stat blocks, that'll all be the same and uploaded regularly. But we like to make our top tier patrons have a special tie-in to each season to the best of our ability. So look forward to all the new ways for us to make that happen. We just don't really know exactly what it'll be yet. Our current legendary mid-roll teams are the Titans Rise, the Twilight Concord, the Ceaseless Horde, and this week's featured team, the Forgotten Legend. Legacy with Chance and username already taco. To get a personal message read on the show or for possible advertising opportunities, reach out to admin at slapdashstudios.com and be sure to follow our YouTube channel to watch live premieres of the LUQ hosted by Dana every Monday night. Me and Zach are also working to finish our ongoing Nuzlocke streams midweek, and I've been streaming some Baldur's Gate 3 off and on, and boy is my PC mad at me for it. We hope to see you on the Discord where new cuties show up every day, and we love saying hello every single time. But that's enough out of me, let's get you back to the battle axis. Invisibility, 84. Fire resistance, 108. Giant strength, 219. Greater healing, 295. We all know potions make the difference when you're on your questing grind, but they're full of calories. Those regions and tinctures are teeming with trans fats and sugars. So how do you stay magically protected while also staying a size medium to small? With new Mont Sorcier Sparkling Diet Potions. Zero calories, zero grams of sugar, totally fat-free and refreshing. With flavors like Memory of a Pear, Grape Rumor, Neighbor's Apple Breath, and Far Away Strawberry. Hey, this potion of fire resistance only lasts for three seconds. Silence him. 
Mont Sorcier Sparkling Diet Potions. Filters with a filter. Did it occur to you that your task to sail all the seas was intended to infect them? I'm not a big thinker, famously, but I did arrive to that conclusion. Do you still serve the Darkwood? If I do, it ain't on purpose. I can't help the nature of what I am. Brought back as many times as I were. Wouldn't be surprised if there were some sort of whisper of it still deep inside. I hear the voice every once in a while. But outside of that first time, it ain't never given me an order. Rest now. I am Kara, demigoddess of small joys and blissful moments. I am Dawn Piper, revel rouser, dear daughter. My existence has no start or end because I am not a person. I am a concept. At, at least, that's what I'm supposed to be. Where I am from, time is a river. Everything flows and nothing abides save for the notion itself. We see the start and the end simultaneously. What one might call the narrative or the monomyth. At least some of us can see it. Calliope could. And that's why she locked her brother away. Because Arsenicos was too ambitious. Too short-sighted. He thought the Eudaemon could fight the Darkwood. But in the monomyth, Calliope saw the fall of Eudaemonia and the end of all things. So she betrayed her brother, my first father, and struck a bargain with the Darkwood. To lock away the world's ambition along with Arsenicos. To surrender Eudaemonia to indolence so that the Darkwood needn't spread. Bliss and freedom for the price of aspiration. But their daughter proved to be the exception. She carried want like a lake holds water, and her longing extended far beyond the stone ruins and untended wields of her home. Calliope tried to curb her daughter's nature, to protect her. But how can a goddess know right from wrong? Each time her daughter crossed the line, Calliope made her forget, time and time again until the day she stole a wish and left her home behind. An image blooms before your eyes. Penny Farthing sprawls lazily in the crumbling ruins of a limestone temple, tracing circles with her fingertips across the surface of an algae-filled scrying pool and humming along to the faint notes of creation that echo through its waters. She is beginning to fall asleep, when a piece of collapsing masonry falls into the pool, disturbing its depths, and the sounds of creation are suddenly replaced by music unlike anything she's heard before. <laughs> Have you ever dreamed of a life filled with adventure? I, yes, how did you? Do you want to visit far off locations and meet interesting people? More than anything. If you answered yes, then you might have what it takes to join the League of Ultimate Questing. Visit Zenith, overcome the Crucible, and your wish might come true. My... my wish? A wish? 
that version of me called herself Penny Farthing. But she was not aware of Calliope's pact with the Darkwood, nor her own connection to it. When her memories did start to return, they were fleeting and insubstantial, as though she were grasping at floating embers and wood smoke. Over time, she began to doubt her own thoughts, second-guessing her very concept. And that's why... <sighs> the next version called herself Penicos. In some ways, a child of Arsenicos and Kara, for his was the template and hers was the spark. And like him, Penicos was too short-sighted, a victim of her own fate. But what could anyone expect? Penny dreamed a newborn godling into existence with the memories of Zillos and the hunger for a purpose she never found. Her brief existence was a struggle with few reprieves, and she clung to those moments like she was drowning. Another scene resolves. In the middle of the night, Penicos struggles to fall asleep in the Fallow Crown's living room. Light from the scry casts a hazy glow over the furniture, while the silence broadcast adds a surreal quality to the night. Becoming frustrated with the throw pillow's firmness, Pen searches for something softer, only to find one of Hal's discarded sweatshirts. Her face flushes, and she returns to the couch. Glancing at the Udaemon breastplate still resting on the dining room table, she gently wraps the sweatshirt around the pillow and lays her head on it. Inhaling deeply, closing her eyes, and mouthing a silent wish for a different future. The next version of me to gain primacy on Zenith was one of the oldest. Penny Piper, who you all know as Penny Dreadful. Even in death, her origin remains a mystery. But she was a version of me who aligned herself with the Darkwood and became its source on Eudaimonia. She was arrogant, selfish, cruel. And apparently, she coordinated the fall of Halifon Orison Jr. She was confident that any version of me who lived long enough would eventually become her. And I don't know if I can refute that. I think Penny and Pen were both unknowingly walking that path. And then I was reborn into my current incarnation. Pentecost, Echo, Calliope. All of their existences ended in order to create Nelly Isadora, a goddess raised by a mortal. How absurd is that? Do you know that I'm the first version of Kara not to think in verse? What does that even mean? A part of me wants nothing to do with any of this. The Darkwood, my destiny. I'm 18. I want to traverse the plains and see what wonders the cosmos holds. I want to make my own decisions. I want to kiss girls. The force of her words explode into scenery. It is evening on Zenith, and Nellie sits in a classroom of mostly novice and hero rank individuals practicing their magic. She furrows her brow, glances at her textbook, and attempts a basic elemental spell, seemingly not for the first time, which sputters and fizzles out. Moments later, a classmate passes Nelly a folded note, shrugging and gesturing towards the far corner, where a young tiefling woman with an asymmetrical undercut and a flannel jacket wings at her from across the room. Reading the note, 
Nellie's face breaks into a grin. She quickly encants a message spell. Hey, Papa. I'm going to keep practicing my spelling at the spec center, so I might be late for supper. Uh-huh. I will. As the spell ends, she's already on her way out the door. Avos leans over to Wusha. I already knew. <laughs> Precocious, isn't she? <laughs> if I'm being honest, there are moments when I don't feel like Kara, where I only feel like Nelly. But I've also been given an opportunity to understand myself, my fundamental concept, better than any lower plural could ever hope to. So, I want to take responsibility for my actions, all of my actions, and try to make things right. I know it's not everything you could ask for, but it's everything I can give. Your past is known. Your future is not. What would you make of it? That is the very question that has vexed me since I returned to Zenith. We all seem to share such tragic destiny. And is, is there a way that it can be supplanted? Is there a way that it can be stopped? I, I don't know the answers. All I can do is try to be better than my predecessors. You speak of choice. But you have none. Yes. The contradiction of existence. Hal runs his thumb along the haft of patrimony. Not all legions have happy endings. Would you take it if offered? Take what? Choice. A moment of silence hangs in the air as Nellie considers it very seriously. I would not change anything that has already happened because... To do so would mean I never had a choice. But if I could make one now? To supplant destiny? Yes, I would. Rest now. I almost puts his hand on Penelope's shoulder. I'm very proud of you. Thanks, Papa. As Iavo steps forward, there isn't very much fear in him. But there is a table that wasn't there before with a small stove next to it. He feeds it a few logs. He ignites some kindling, breathes into the fire, and takes to work chopping onions as he tells his story. I was born on a farm in the shadow of a mining town called Leeward. My mother and father there were victims of human nature, under the weight of hardships outside their control. Both cruel at heart, Addicted to creature comforts and quick to anger. I have been told I had a brother with a twisted mind. And I know with all my heart I had a sister who protected me from them. For you see, it was a dark seed of corruption that tainted the land when I was just a babe. And being one with my home, I suppose I too was corrupted. A sick boy, robbed of all color and vitality. Regardless of the tragedies that unfolded here, it was all burned to the ground. All but me and my dear sister. She took me far away, seeking answers to my ailments, and desperately pressing on to find a safe home for us. To make matters worse for her, I was dreaming the whole time. Not resting, but gone from my body. 
My sleeping ego was sent far, far away, leaving behind a weak and mindless husk. I don't know what force pulled me into the dream, but for the purposes of telling the tale of who I am, this is when the story really started. I once again found myself on a struggling farm, but this time in a household full of love. The famine was met with selfless sharing. The dangers were countered by unity. The solitude was washed away with honest affection. A mother strong of will and quick to laughter. She was an unbending force against hunger and sorrow. Her heart burned hot like a hearthstone, and she knew secrets in a way that only mothers can. Her love was unimaginable, which I suppose makes sense now. My father in this place was a veteran of wars with no evidence. A stoic and silent man. There was a gentleness to him, but there was a sleeping power inside as well. A might ready to rise up to any challenge to keep his land and his loved ones safe. He told me when he left the war he melted down his sword to make tools for the farm. But at some point he must have felt war was returning, because he left me this... Iavo says, setting the plowshare to the ground. A cruel symbol. Tools of life and growth, unmade and reborn as an implement of killing. The longer I carry it, the heavier it gets. I had a brother who, if we're being honest, is the one you would want to interview for an interesting life story. He was a brave fool with a silver tongue. Each weekday morning he would set out on the road, fast as a song, Travel to faraway port towns and great cities beyond the borders of the Acre. It seemed like he was the only one able to make it that far. And each night he would return with stories and pockets full of foreign coins and trinkets of his adventures. His ability to do so simply made sense at the time. And my sister, who I was attached to at the hip, it seemed. She was bold with a beautiful sadness inside of her. She was always right. It didn't matter the lesson or the argument. It seemed as though she was incapable of saying something that wasn't simply the truth, or in the case of her lectures, a fact. To think through all those readings, all the stories and histories she put before me, all along there was magic to it, a gift between the lines. And of course, there was another child. I don't think I ever met them. I'd say I was too young, but that wasn't how things worked there. They were, and remain to this day, a strong but obscured memory. They were lost, unable to be saved from their fate, and buried under an old willow tree deep in the earth. Their gravestone bore the number three. I miss them so much. I would spend hours talking to them. I felt them. We all felt them at the empty seat at the table. They had died, most certainly, but they were never truly gone. Just a comforting manifestation of death, to love and remember at all times. At that, the bell of the thirdborn begins to ring. Time didn't really move forward in the acre. There were seasons, there was day and night, but everything was a cycle. Things grew, but people didn't. The earth decayed, but our foundation was untouched. It would have seemed impossible if I had known any other life, but it was all I knew. Crops grew, seasons changed, and we had supper at sundown. 
nobody got older. For a hundred years I was comfortably trapped on the dangerous bridge between boy and man. I remember every day. Every lesson was new. How could we have enough books to read a new one each day? How could we harvest enough crops on a dying patch of land with no rest? I would have never asked these questions if I had never woken up from my sleep. Cold, sick, and alone. Sure, there were strangers there, but that does not make one less alone. Snapped into a dying body. Plagued by the dark waters of my birthplace. Void of all color and brimming with incomprehensible magic. I had no direction whatsoever, until the words of my sister and the pull of my heartstrings drew me to error. You see, I had awoken on a Magitech satellite, a sprawling industry center of cities and trade. The shock was as much as I could bear. From the acre to this, surely a nightmare. Some kind of hell. But alas, I spoke to those around me, and my heart softened. I lost my ambition to question the madness of it almost immediately, because deep in my heart I felt I would return home soon, with my own stories to tell. The waking mind is a foolish thing. Then I met the fallow crown. At the time they were called Gold Dragon, a handsome young celebrity trained from birth to smile for the camera, and a font of knowledge regarding playbooks and legends and not much else, or so I thought. A tragic figure, a man with no head. How could a headless man disarm you with his smile? I'll never understand. Quick of mind and body, downright sinister in his calculations of plans, obscured by mystery, revealing nothing. I understand why now. And then there she was, fresh out of paradise. Innocent as a child with all the gifts of a seedling goddess. She spoke and sang great power into existence. She illuminated the room with joy. She was foolish due to a lack of experience with things like danger and conflict. But like all of us, she learned the hard way. We were sent to error. I was told I was allowed due to my energy matching that of the plane. I found my things buried there, as well as the sword. It seemed impossible, but after the week I'd had, it was comforting just to be myself again for a moment. And then we were off, quest after quest, trial and error from ancient cursed mines filled with corrupted gold to underground colonies of strange creatures who wished to reclaim the surface and use rituals to push back the wrath of a hungry god. I studied the writings of mad old necromancers and tasted the tragic stories written in flesh on the souls lost in an endless library. The power of the knowledge was addicting. And as we sold the flesh of our conquests for fame and comfort, I grew close to my friends. All I had known was family, so it was natural my mind would put them into that role, far beyond was reasonable. I cooked for them, I patched their wounds, I found myself becoming quite fond of their triumphs and failures. And we were doing well. But there was more to our team's formation than synergy. There was a plan, and it involved error. It involved me. The next time we were there, we rebuilt a farm. We watched a hero die. We danced with the dead, and I took meticulous notes. You see, that's what they wanted, to know as much about error as possible. The quests were only secondary, but we were told very little. 
Due to our growth in the League, we were promoted to hero rank, and with it came a makeover. There was a press conference for everyone to ask questions of the shiny new heroes, and it unfolded into an absolute bloodbath. Hidden assassins struck, creatures corrupted by the dark wood. They tried to kill Penny. They knew something we didn't. They took their rage out of the innocent bystanders. We couldn't save them all. And to make matters worse, Hal went home. For the first time, anyway. And they didn't kill Penny, but they did cut her deeply. Beyond repair. They did it with a kind of blade we would learn later was made on error. A skeptic's blade, they call it. The kind of weapon that unmakes plurals. It was the Fae Council of Zenith that guided her to make the choice between remaining damaged and quite likely falling apart due to conflict of her alignment, or be born again in a new form. Another version of herself, just as real and extant as any other, but simply in a new place with new memories. I regret our lack of goodbyes. But needless to say, she returned to us as Penacos, a huntress and a warrior with that sword and that shield. But that is her story. It was around this time Gaspar found himself in jail. But that is his story, and I've been legally advised to clarify that the simple act of being in jail does not indicate guilt of any crime. (laughs) (laughs) Gaspar nods in approval. (laughs) I made a promise to him that I would do everything in my power to help him out of the situation he was in. Not the jail cell, that was quite mundane in comparison. He had a heavy burden indeed. And then there was the gentle giant of the sea assigned to us, a fourth member. That's when Wuxia entered our family, lovable, problematic, and infinitely loyal, a true friend. At the time when Hal returned to us, he told us about the war back home, where he came from. He was called back to help his mother, a powerful archangel and commander of an army, fighting an endless war to keep balance of all things. And between you and me, a horrible mother and a real jerk, We didn't know it then, but in a way the war would be ours eventually. We all trained and grew stronger. The League assigned me a teacher they felt would best help me utilize and understand the skills I had exhibited. His name was Sunderholm. I believe you're familiar with him. Thousands upon thousands of small pinpricks of green light blossom in the air before you, each one of them taking shape as Falric Sunderholm's screaming face, each one witnessing a new horror. The corner of Iavos' mouth curls at this. He was eager to take me deep into the dream world and show me how powerful I could become there. My friends were competing in some exhibition event I had no business being part of, so I welcomed the ritual. If I could grow stronger for my friends, it was my duty to do so. But I was foolish. Maybe he influenced me, or maybe I tricked myself. Either way, the end result was indeed a trip deep into the world of dreams— but he failed to show me a way out. I was stuck. But of course my friends came for me. Between my body and that world, there was a kind of tether, and they could use the battle axes to get there. And so they did. But poor Pentecost. Nobody stopped her. They didn't understand. Plurals can't enter the astrum. They don't dream. It simply unmakes them. She was lost to us unmade by a doorway into my own mind. And that is when she made her move. They called her Penny Dreadful, and the unmaking of Pentecost was her doorway into our lives. After I had been rescued, we went to Eudaimonia to try to save Penny, and to help in their fight with the Darkwood. 
It was spilling over into Zenith, and Kinuit was dying. They asked for help, and we had to respond. Penny's family enacted a ritual, a sacrifice in a way, made manifest a new version of our original Penny, an echo of what she once was. They said it was important that she was with us for what we were about to face. The time had come to confront Penny Dreadful. She left a trail of breadcrumbs, the machinations of endless planning to draw us to the heart of the dark woods. And that's where the battle took place. That's where we fought our old rival Ophidian Ashpool for the last time. And that's where Hal turned his weapons on us, declaring himself her new champion. And together they laid us low. They broke poor Wusha. But Hal stopped. He said he'd done enough, and with a flash of light he went home. And then Gaspar... He used his dark gift to consume her. He pulled her into the void of his heart and pierced it with a blade made to kill a god. He sacrificed himself. It was all too much in the process, the power of the woods, the destruction of so many powerful souls. Something in me cracked, and I blacked out. And when I awoke, I was a father. Over the next sixteen years, I made my home in paradise. I scoured the remains of the battlefield to piece back together all I could manage. There is no sadness in Eudaimonia, but in the heart of the dark forest I found my tears. And most importantly, I raised a child. Penelope was reborn. When Dreadful was unmade, her mother Calliope called for the Echo to help her make three broken things into one whole. The child. The moment I lifted her from the moss and mud all memories of the brilliant, brave hero she had been. I knew she was special. She needed me, and I needed her. She was mine, and after all these years of raising her, it has been the greatest adventure I have experienced. I knew love like I hadn't felt in ages. No ancient tome could teach me such things about being a father figure to a blooming goddess, but I will cherish it for all time. And in time, we found a lingering seed of the dark wood still clinging to its horrible destiny, and we found Gaspar, a soul without a body, bound to a wicked tool we collected along the way, and together we rid the place of that curse. But the wheels were moving too fast now. We had to leave paradise and return home, make things right with the League. Turns out we were in a world of trouble. We had to convince the spokesman to let us remain part of the program. We had to find a new patron. We had to sign new contracts and learn new truths about what had happened while we were gone. Zenith and the League had changed. Our former commissioner was incarcerated. Many viewed us as criminals. Despite it all, we got some help from greater entities than ourselves, as often seems to be the case, both in guidance and in forgiveness. But we had also made enemies of those who were once our allies. After a few quests to polish our tarnished honor, we earned some newfound comforts. We were hired to rescue a young man named Dirk Bradley, who had been trapped in a pocket dimension by his cruel father, who, it turns out, had taken the place of the acting commissioner. He liked to talk, that one, and told us of his plans both present and past. We learned that he used sickening magic rituals to attempt to achieve a fabricated plurality. And he was not alone in this. Our former ally Halifon's own mother was involved in this ritual as well and as it turned out in the process, took the life of his famous father. We brought him to justice, or at least handed him over to those with more say in his fate than ourselves, and it was I who brought the fallow crown the fact that we should share this news with Halifon. 
Despite his betrayal, and despite the confusion in serving his mother's will, he deserved to know the truth. We went to Ethel-Toa. We confronted our once friend. He had changed, but we all had. And once the word was shared, he set out to bring down his mother. And since she was certainly tied to the presence of the dark wood in that place, it felt right to help him in his vengeance. Our fate and the dark woods had been tied for a long time. Who better to make it right than we? Most of our choices in all of this were made for us. True, we had agency, but when given a quest, one is expected to act the part. And it always felt good to help others. There can be no denying that. But we've learned so much. Too much. I don't even know what I am anymore. In a way, my dreaming life was a lie. A manifestation of greater things, wearing the face of loved ones. It was all taken from me when I woke up, and now I have a new life, new friends, reunited with my lost sister, blessed with the dearest daughter a father could hope for, part of the cosmic balance. I lost true love and found it again. But does it mean anything? Is it worth anything? Why should I believe these connections? I'm lost in doubt. What if I just wake up again? Stepping from another lie into a new life of suffering. Intention creates action. Action propagates change. Inquiry seeks to carve out the amorphous boundaries of good and evil. What good, then, is choice? What evil? Can a moment be evil without the one before and after? The directionality of time alone and the context of position within time defines good and evil. Without time, there is no change. Without change, there is no suffering. Without time, there is no life. Without life, no joy, no love. Do you see what you do to us? How you twist us and shape us into tools of your understanding? We are vague, boundaryless meanings, waiting to be given words. Without you, we are one, all, never, forever. Within you, we are the callow caprice of the winds of change. We yearn to be understood by minds too complex to grasp. I'm proud of you too. Sorry, I was a little long. I know mine was longer. I apologize. No, no it's, it's fine. fine. You, you but also, I almost is also incredibly thorough. <laughs> right. He is. He is. You also filled in stuff that other people didn't necessarily talk about. Mm-hmm. And having not planned it, the the places where things did and didn't overlap worked out pretty well. Right. Yeah.
How dare the character who is a sage have the longest story to tell? <laughs> so I don't want to go around and hear favorite moments. But what I do want to hear is your reflection on this episode. Mm. Start with, uh, uh, what was your name again? Uh, Anjavo. Oh. <laughs> Anjavo. <laughs> I like Anjavo. <laughs> Anjavo sounds like an instructor of some kind. Like he teaches windsurfing in like Costa Rica. That or like a pickup artist. That's fair. <laughs> I, or, a deli- los dos. <laughs> or a delicious beverage. I, I teach a windsurfing type martial art. <laughs> so when you get attacked on your surfboard. By a shark. Yeah. <laughs> Buy anything. Even the wind. <laughs> Even the wind. That, that's uh, right. It turns out that Angelo kills gods in all versions of himself. <laughs> Did you not know this? I like the idea that windsurfing is just fighting the wind with a sail. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just cutting it. I'm okay. winning! Hmm, <laughs> <laughs> let's Angelo, why don't you start? <laughs> in what me- well, however you mean- interpret that, what are your thoughts? How do you feel about it? I like, obviously, how much our characters, you know, are part of us. I feel like as we did these, it was very much, very much getting to almost like you're talking about a friend's story, right? Like mm. like we knew what was going on. We were able to fill in parts and feelings that we did not write down. Yeah. It was obviously very nostalgic. Yeah. Which is weird. Not weird, but kind of, also eh, kind of fun being nostalgic about made up memories. <laughs> but we lived them. I mean, we, we about kind our of, game, you know. Lived, yeah, nostalgic about a D and D. Yeah, game. well, there's a difference between like us sitting around, like maybe at a bar or, or like a party, and just shooting the shit about. Oh, you remember this game? Well, yeah. But to have this nostalgic conversation take place as part of the game. Yeah, it's through. it's like it's a, it's a different experience. I don't think a lot of other campaigns get to have that. Yeah. I'm of the personal belief, which I am guilty of in season one, is that near the end of a season, it's really good to have an episode that has a huge element of walking through everything that's happened up to this point. Yeah, from from the character's perspective, be it through this like trial or like in season one, it was it was just talking about all the NPCs they'd made along the way and how they were calling to help them out. Yeah. I feel like I'm in a unique position here. Take this little fucking gurney with me. It's like journey, but with a G. Um, (laughs) Are you dying again? (laughs) I missed most of the beginning of season two, right? I, by the nature of who I am, just wasn't around. I felt like that was not only Wuxia the character, but Max the player's first time getting to know everybody's origins really intimately. Yeah. And I thought that was fucking awesome. I thought that was a lot of fun. I thought that was really valuable. And I, th- I think it's, it's, we've had this come up both last episode and this episode, uh, maybe the episode before. Uh, I think it's a good point where our characters can reevaluate their relationships with one another. And I think that's really fucking cool. I really look forward to how that's going to like, change our interactions going forward mm-hmm. and and this 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 feels like the most important episode I've gotten to be a part of. That's fair. I, I really like what you just said is there are a lot of revelations for our characters in this episode that they may not have been aware of. Yeah. And just a really interesting pivotal moment in in how they interact with each other. We yeah. got Wusha and Penny, 
We got things to talk about. Nice. Nice. Hell yeah. Good. Hell yeah. You kind of skipped over Al there. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> I thought this was uh, an interesting sort of... This is one, I'll be honest with you, listeners. This is one of the first homework assignments that Zach has given us that I've actually done. <laughs> and you did very well. Uh, <laughs> a lot of them a lot of them have come in kind of late, and I've kind of half-assed them because I'm working and have children, and I don't have the energy for them. But I like went into Hal's like, backstory that hasn't come up a whole bunch because I haven't provided it yet. <laughs> um, and so it was kind of interesting to get to do that a little bit in this and go think about Hal's childhood and how he, what he was like prior to where we meet him on Scry because Hal hasn't changed a whole lot since we met him on Scry, but seeing him as a little kid and stuff was kind of like, Oh, you did most of your character development before you ever stepped foot on the show. (laughs) Yeah. Well that, yeah, yeah, I guess. But also just kind of thinking about like, all right, what, what was, Knowing what we know now about some of the stuff that's been fleshed out, like what was Hal's childhood probably like? Yeah. Oh my God, it was sad. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder he didn't talk about it. I wouldn't either. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, a, it was a really interesting opportunity because I think Penny's backstory has had more screen time than than anyone else's in the show. So instead of focusing on on really the events of that, um, which I don't, I don't think more details would necessarily add to it. No. I really um, got, got to focus a little more on Nellie's mindset and through, through that lens, like the mindsets of these previous characters, and show a few, just a few scenes that didn't make it on the show, uh, such as how Penny heard about the League of Ultimate Questing, because I, you know, early on, that was so good. That was, that was so fucking good. <laughs> yeah, that was that was the image in my head from the start of the season. And and early on, people are like, well, if she decided to come here and join the League, how does she know so little about it? It's like, oh, that was the same day. Yeah. <laughs> like, she just got up and went. <laughs> uh, as much fun as it is to, like, hear the stories from each of the characters' perspective, I also really enjoy listening to the writing from each writer's perspective. Hell yeah. And a big part of that comes across in the delivery. And I like that each of you brought something different that manifests truly how you've been playing your character. Yeah. Like, Angelo, you have been so good at incrementally sneaking in the tragedy of Gaspar's backstory without revealing anything. And then in this one, we actually probably got, like, the most sizable, tangible chunk. And it's horrible. Yeah. The the the, the conveyor beltness of it is so heartbreaking. And Max, you delivered the whole thing with, you literally wrote it in phonetics <laughs> and delivered it just with so much reading voice of Wuxia. It was, uh, it was great. Because, you know, listening to that kind of voice tell a story is way different than hearing someone just narrate a story. Thank you. And can, I, can I tell a, a little personal struggle? Oh, please. I am fairly dyslexic. Mm-hmm. So reading out loud is super fucking hard. And this is one of the the best deliveries I felt like I've had reading out loud recently. You did better than a lot of the times I've had to read that much shit. And I fucking do this shit constantly. I've I've gotten a lot of practice reading for a baby recently. And it was nice to be able to like project it into a place where other people can hear it too. That's wholesome. And and, and Michael, like in the past with Alaphon, you you manifested actual scenes. Like you described the childhood issues. More than just listening to Hal say it, watching it happen, I think, is more impactful because Hal's not a speaker. Like, he's good at talking and he's smart, but he doesn't weave a story. It's like, just just look. Just look at this. <laughs> and, like, Penny, you literally, do like, 
despite how terrifying the situation is, of course, delivering the story of yourself is going to be done with bravery. Like you really hit it. It almost had like a pantameter, even in the beginning, I am Kara. I am. And I was like, okay, this is a vibe. I'm really, and that's when I said, I'm proud of you <laughs> could like literally feel I have was being proud of the courage his daughter was showing. Uh, it's good. Yeah. Michael, so you definitely had like this more cinematic feel, whereas uh, Dana years definitely had this almost like a borderline slam poetry vibe where it's, you know, well, it almost read like a, a epic play kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Like a combination of slam poetry and Beowulf. Mm. <laughs> I, I did like getting to own the name Kara in this episode. Yeah. Because it's been said in two other episodes, but it's not been like owned. Yeah. Slam a wolf. <laughs> no, and I did love the places where y'all crossed over. Y'all said everything I could say uh, better. And I'm just so happy that we got to do this and have a moment of reflection and figure out how we feel about our characters and our story, uh, especially as they're beginning to come to an end. What y'all think of Doug's description? Oh my god! The- <laughs> oh, that was that was vivid. <laughs> Sir. I love the fucked up gods. Love them. Love them. I, uh, I I I knew from the beginning of this show that I I knew I was going to call a lot of things gods. I knew I was going to throw that word around a lot, and then be like, the moment you read meet an actual god, it was going to be fundamentally different. Uh, and I hope I delivered on that. Yes. I feel like if I had to read the description, it would be weird. But just hearing it, I could like picture it so clearly. Yeah. That mm-hmm. makes sense. And I don't want to picture it. Make it stop. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was. That's too much. Yeah, you can't close your ears. Yeah. You did You did something I don't notice you do very often, mm. which I thought was really cool, where, like, you usually try to keep, like, a, like a fairly even delivery and not, like, not try to put too much of your own, like, emphasis and, like, like emotions into it, especially when it's just, like, reading narration and shit, like, reading things that we see. Yeah. There was... There was feeling put into this one. There was there was uh, a level of intention, intention, <laughs> almost like your raw emotion put into what this thing looks like, which uh, is a cool thing that we don't get to see very often outside of you, like delivering lines that a character is saying. Uh, I will say that these entities were based heavily on a personal experience that I had not too long ago, uh, which is probably why I put a lot more emotion into them. And we're not going to cover <laughs> why or how. Nope, nope. <laughs> Don't need to. I went to the dentist. Yes. <laughs> to the old dentist. Zach and I shared a very complicated handshake. <laughs> <laughs> so this has been a very intense, very long episode, and I really appreciate Hedegar the Editor for editing it. It is a it is a beast of an app, and I think it was worth it. You know, Law was hesitant about splitting it up, and I think he was dead on. I think it was a great idea that we put it all into one episode. That way, also, if y'all were bored with this, you only had to skip one episode. You're not having to go through, like... (laughs) Also, how dare you? Also, how dare you? (laughs) Also, if they skip this, they won't know, because the... Yeah, they'll be like... They just skip to the outro. Sure. Sometimes you don't want people... Yeah, that's a good point. I like the idea that they just open the episode, listen to the first half of the meta, jump right to the end, and they're like... Fuck you. <laughs> Don't call me out. You know. There's not a one person alive who's ever scrubbed to the outro. Yeah. <laughs> let, me, let me get to that juicy outro. You know, other shows get, um, you know, hot springs and beach episodes, yeah. but yeah. You know, this is good too. <laughs> yeah, f- sad fireside chat. I want to listen to the Favy Momos and the outro, and then I'll decide if the rest of the episode is worth <laughs> listening to. <laughs> The enthusiasm of our favorite moments is definitely a good way to determine if it was a good episode. (laughs) 
I, I'm really excited about what's coming. The rest of this whole series is going to be pretty breakneck pace. So take your time in this space where it's nice and calm and relatively slow because it's not going to be that way for long. And as we go through it, I wish you luck. Yeah.